Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast as we present The Metropolitan Man. Written by Alexander Wales, read by Eniash Brodsky. Conclusion to Chapter 3 Well, of course I trust Superman, said Lex. Lois Lane sat across from him in one of his leather chairs. Across the hallway, the sounds of construction could be heard as his study was ripped apart in anticipation of lead lining on all the walls, the floor, and the ceiling. When the sheets of lead were in place, the fine woodwork would be replaced and the room would look exactly like it was before. Lois Lane had apparently asked Navas for the name of one of his clients, and Navas had mentioned Lex Luthor. It was a minor betrayal of confidence, but Lex guessed that Navas had given up Lex's name because of the conversation they'd had, wherein Lex had put forth what he believed was the most cogent possible argument in favor of a perfectly innocent man obtaining protection from the eyes of a watchful and seemingly benevolent god. Nivas didn't know that Lex was the one behind the funding, nor the author of the paper he'd been mailed. I trust Superman, but do you believe that Superman is perfectly good? Perfectly? That's a high standard, but he's as damned close as we're gonna get. He's been here four months now, and he's saved hundreds if not thousands of lives. He doesn't act as a law unto himself, he just flies through the air and helps people like it was the most natural thing in the world. He hasn't killed anyone, and despite what people might allege, I don't believe that he's ever seriously injured anyone either. All true, said Lex with a smile. But given that he isn't perfect, do you think it's reasonable to take precautions against the possibility that he one day acts in some unconscionable way? Is it really worth however many hundreds or thousands of dollars this renovation is costing you? There are a number of factors that go into determining that. I have enough money that the expense is somewhat trivial to me, and I have enough intellectual property that having it stolen would be quite damaging to me. Patents, ideas, formulas, processes, and half a hundred other things. Beyond that, there is a value to me in not being watched, even when I'm not doing anything of note. It brings me peace of mind, which is worth something even when the actual risk is low. I suspect much of the sales of this shielding will go to husbands who want to know that their wives aren't being spied on in the bath. Humans have an intrinsic right to privacy. Navis told me that, and I suspect that he heard it from you. I believe I said something like that, yes. It's one of the great flaws of our constitution that a right to privacy is not among those enumerated. It's funny, isn't it? No one would begrudge you from having frosted windows in the bathroom, or drawing your curtains when company is over. But as soon as Superman enters the picture, many people think that such measures are somehow indicative of criminality, or morally wrong in and of themselves. I didn't bring up crime. But you will, in the article? Of course. Lois nodded. Then I have a further argument for you. Perhaps you perfectly trust Superman not to look at you while you change. Or perhaps you have no secrets you'd rather he not be privy to. But do you believe that Superman will always be the only one with his abilities? We can infer that there are other aliens out there. And here on Earth, there are plenty of scientists, myself included, who are working to reverse engineer the things they see him do. If tomorrow my rivals in business can see through my walls, they'll find my defenses already in place. 
Which is only prudent. I suppose. I think I have everything I need. More than I need, actually. The article isn't going to be particularly long. You can admit that you enjoy talking to me. It's stimulating, I'll give it that. But I also came here to thank you. The ERA passed the Senate and moved on to the House, and even if it fails there, I'll consider you to have held up your end of the bargain. I'm a man of my word, Miss Lane. Though I have to warn you that prospects are bleak. The 18th Amendment has made people shy of modifying our founding document. All the same. There was a moment where perhaps Lex could have asked her to dinner, but he let it pass by. Lois was tenacious and decisive, intelligent and principled, and in another time he might have tried to see whether she could sustain his interest in the long term. Now was a time of action, and the threat of Superman was too great to permit for such idle distractions. Later, perhaps, when Superman lay dead in the street, Lex would go on the pursuit. After they'd said their goodbyes, Lex sat in his smoking room and thought about explosives. The actual designs would have to wait until his study had been coated in lead, but until that time, he could refine his plans within his head. He would need to find someone to carry out his will, someone without a strong moral compass. But he thought that he had just the right person in mind. End Chapter 3 Chapter 4 Like Clockwork Harry Kramer loved explosives. He loved the danger of working with them and the thrill of watching them go off. A properly made bomb was an amazing piece of engineering, a compact device of wires, springs, and explosives, all set up in a very precisely and ordered way. When the bomb went off, all that hard work evaporated in a single transformative moment. It was like taking a piece of fine crystal and hurling it against the side of a brick wall. And how could someone not feel joy at that? How could someone not see that there was something magical that only existed in that single solitary moment when the product of labor and a thoughtful mind became nothing more than garbage? Though there wasn't anything sexual about it, the best word that Harry had found for it was orgasmic. A thick letter came in the mail for him. He ran a few simple tests to see whether it might contain a bomb, sniffing at it and hefting it carefully. Letter bombs were tricky to do because you couldn't reliably set them on a timer unless you knew for certain when they'd be opened. The letter also had to make it through the postal service without detonating or being discovered, which was a challenge in and of itself. The most common way to make a letter bomb was to fill an envelope with two chemicals that were explosive when mixed, separating them with layers of paper. Another chemical trigger was placed along the top where the paper was going to be ripped. The chemicals would mix when the letter was opened and the bomb would explode, but that was often messy because people didn't always open their own mail. It was easier to make a larger package that would explode, because then you didn't need to worry about the bomb being bent or squeezed. But there was a very clear distinction between a letter bomb and a mail bomb, owing to the restrictions on construction. Harry had a reoccurring fantasy about being sent a letter bomb. In the fantasy, he would smell the metallic powders and carefully disarm the bomb in his workshop, pulling it apart to expose its secrets. Written inside the letter bomb would be words of congratulations for showing caution, and a coy invitation to begin using his skills in earnest. 
In the fantasy, he and the other bomber would engage in conversation written across the city in explosive force, needing nothing more than concussive blasts to speak to each other. There was something raw and primal about destroying the ordered world of the city. Eventually, Harry would prove himself the superior of the two, and she would reveal herself to him and declare her undying love for him. It was always a woman, of course. They would exchange hot, hungry kisses on the rooftop of his apartment as Harry's bombs leveled the city. The letter he'd received wasn't a bomb. Instead, there was an offer of employment. Beneath that, the bulk of the envelope contained crisp $20 bills, enough to pay for his apartment for two full years. The letter was concerning because it meant that someone knew about him, but it was exciting because it meant that he was going to get to do something that he loved. It wasn't some simple job that required only a simple demolition or death. It was finally a chance to be unchained and fully funded. No longer would he have to cobble something together from bits and pieces. He was going to make something beautiful. What makes a person do a thing like this? Lois rolled her eyes. Clark was a heavy man, thick without really seeming muscular, though you could tell from a glance that he'd never learned to buy clothes that fit. He had terrible posture, his hair was messy, and he wore glasses so thick you could hardly see his eyes through them. He seemed to get sick constantly, and he was so out of shape that whenever they had to move quickly, he could be seen gasping for air afterwards. He had the desk right next to Lois's, and so she'd had time to examine each and every one of his faults. That was just a small sampling of the physical problems with Clark. Much to her consternation, he was somehow the second best reporter at the Daily Planet. They were often paired together for the big stories, since it allowed Perry to run a companion story to a front pager. More often than not, Lois found that being around Clark tried her patience. It was made worse by the fact that he'd quite obviously developed an infatuation with her from nearly the day that he'd started working at the planet. He'd asked her out during his second week, and she'd politely but firmly told him no, but he was still hung up on her. One of the only good things about Clark was that he was as transparent as glass. His crush was more sad than annoying. Most days, anyway. Lois and Clark were standing outside the remains of an apartment building. It had exploded earlier in the day at around noon, sending bricks, wood, and personal belongings in every direction, and shattering a number of windows all around the block. Two people had died, and a lot more had been seriously injured. The apartment was still standing, but three of the upper floors were now just a gaping hole, and it was likely that there was enough structural damage that the building was a total loss. Everyone talked about how much worse it could have been. It was front-page material for sure. Some people are just evil. I don't think a person is born a certain way. People make choices, for good or evil. Free will is a part of God's design. I just can't understand why someone would make this choice. Lois tried to stop herself from rolling her eyes again. Some design. She said as she spotted a severed arm in the rubble that no one seemed to have picked up yet. Lois and Clark had done their interviews, talking to the victims, police, firefighters, and neighbors. There was little question that the explosion had been deliberate. 
The police were already chasing down some promising leads, though Lois knew that half the time they only said that to keep people reassured. They'd been back at the Daily Planet building working late when the second bomb had gone off, exactly six hours after the first. This one was at a sales office downtown. Most of the staff had gone home, but the rescue workers had pulled a few corpses from the wreckage. She overheard one of the onlookers say that it was a tragedy that people had died because they'd stayed late to work. She made sure to put that in her article. The third bomb exploded in Superman's face. He'd found it in the freezer of a grocery store and got people out of the way before he'd tried moving it, which was when it had blown up. Lots of people reported seeing a gaping hole torn right in the center of his costume. Superman had spoken directly with the chief of police, giving him as much information as possible. Lois had come back into the office late at night in order to write about it, and found that Clark was already there in a wrinkled shirt, looking for all the world like he'd never stopped working when she'd left at eight. Though he finished his article before her, she came up with the better moniker, the Clockwork Bomber. Perry groused about them being too competitive and wasting effort writing the same story, then decided to run Lois's article in the morning edition with the headline, Clockwork Bomber Strikes Midnight. The long hours were worth it, just for the forlorn look on Clark's face. Lois set her alarm for five in the morning. The first bomb had been at noon, the second at six, and the third Superman had detonated just before midnight. The pattern was obvious to anyone with half a brain. Ten minutes before six o'clock in the morning, she heard a distant rumble from across the city, and she was ready to trek off towards it in her most sensible shoes. Clark was nowhere to be seen, and despite being tired as hell, Lois felt a warm glow of satisfaction that she'd beat him to the punch. The mayor and the chief of police held a press conference where they promised that they would find the man or men responsible. No one made any demands, and no one claimed credit. Everyone braced themselves for another bomb at noon, but it didn't come. Four bombs had claimed the lives of six people, and there didn't seem to be a point to it. The casualties had been much lower than they could have been, given the time of day that the bombs had gone off and the locations that they'd been placed, but it was anyone's guess what that said about the bomber. A few days passed, and eventually things began to settle down again. Lois was surprised when she found a second letter on her desk, addressed to Miss Lane and requesting to meet her in the same place as before. She was ready this time and grabbed a sheet of paper with a series of questions from inside her desk. She stopped by Terry's desk to tell him where she'd be going, just in case something happened. Perry looked ecstatic, but Lois felt her nerves getting the best of her. She prided herself on being utterly fearless. She'd stood on the spire of the Empire Building as the first airship came in, strapped in with what amounted to a thick belt. She'd hunted big game with Hemingway over a memorable summer in Kenya. She'd braved storms while sailing the North Atlantic in a yacht, the closest she'd ever come to actually dying. She found these adventures exhilarating instead of terrifying. Yet there was something about Superman that tickled some animal part of her brain. She did her best to ignore it, and made the trek up to the rooftop where the Man of Steel was waiting. Hello, Lois, he said as he turned around. His smile was gentle, but it didn't help her nerves. 
Luther had said that Superman moved faster than muscles alone would dictate, but that didn't make the muscles look any less impressive. It was impossible for her to look at him and not think about the fact that he could cross the distance between them faster than she could blink. Hello, Superman. I've got some questions for you. I know. Lois immediately imagined him staring through the walls, looking over the questions she'd prepared for him and composing answers. It felt utterly invasive. She would never allow an interview subject to look over the questions like that, not at this stage in her career. She really should have gotten one of those lead-lined drawers. Of course, maybe he'd just meant that he knew she had questions, because everyone had questions. She found herself unwilling to give him the benefit of the doubt. Go on, but I can't answer everything. Where's your ship? It burnt up over the Atlantic on my way in. Could you find the wreckage? There wouldn't be anything left. Even if there were, I wouldn't hand it over. If humanity were able to work backwards and figure out how it was made, I fear the results would be disastrous. It would be like giving a gun to a baby. Lois frowned. And you're the final arbiter of what's good for humanity, what we can and can't handle. I am the arbiter of myself. I can only do what I think is best, and hope that humanity gives the same consideration to their own actions. Okay, but are you really doing the most good? I mean, I've seen proposals for what other people would be doing with your powers. Digging canals or generating power, searching out veins of ore. The amount of money- I don't need money. He interrupted her so delicately that she momentarily lost her train of thought. You don't, but the rest of us do. These are lucrative jobs that could bring in millions, and with that you could fund orphanages, women's shelters, homeless shelters, whatever charitable organizations you wanted. We could set up a trust. It wouldn't matter that you were using your powers for a profit, because that profit would be directly translated into good works that would overwhelm positive effects of the crime-fighting and general heroism you do now. Lex Luthor's words were coming out of her mouth. And if you embrace the celebrity that you already have, you could charge enormous amounts of money for the use of your image. People are already making lunchboxes and trading cards with your emblem, and I've heard that they're making two different movies about you. These things are going to happen whether you're involved with them or not. You could at least make some money that you could use for good causes. Saving people from violent crime is an unambiguous good. Bringing money into it isn't, and I don't know that I should be supplying humanity with a brawn that it doesn't and shouldn't have yet. I've tried my best to confine myself to acting only when there is a clear good to be done. I'm trying not to bend the course of human history or force my morality on anyone else. I do that by operating within the laws of the country and avoiding controversy as much as possible. I have as few points of interference with a citizen's daily life as possible. You think that an avoidance of controversy is part of the greater good? Do you think that the laws of this country are anywhere close to just? She pointed across the city to the docks and the channel where ships were streaming in and out of the harbor. A hundred years ago, there were slaves being sold here. If you'd showed up then, would you have stopped slave masters from beating their slaves? Do the laws of men mean that much to you that you'd actually let such an injustice stand? You're losing your cool. Lois looked down at her notebook. She hadn't asked him a question from it for quite some time. You're right. I'm sorry. It's just that sometimes I think about what I would do if I had your powers, and in comparison you seem so... Reluctant? Yes. During Prohibition, as part of an effort to stop people from drinking industrial alcohol, it was denatured and methyl alcohol was added, making it toxic. They thought that people would change their behavior. 
The end result was that the United States government killed 10,000 of its own citizens. I wrote an article about that. It never made it to print. I know. He looked out towards the city in quiet contemplation. I believe that the people who poured their poisons into the vats truly believed that they were doing good. They just couldn't see what the end result would be. Even with the work I've been doing, there have been unwanted side effects. He pursed his lips. I get the distinct impression that people are less cautious with their lives now that they have me around. People shout for me to save them instead of taking action. There was a fire in an apartment building three days ago, and half the occupants ran up to the roof and screamed for me to come pick them up. If I'd been dealing with some other more serious disaster at the time, those people would have died. These are the things that happen on even a small scale when humanity is saved from their own mistakes and steered away from forging their own path. I'm sure you could think of half a dozen other examples of the unintended consequences. She could. The budgets for the police and fire department in Metropolis were up for review, and both looked like they were going to be cut by a large percent because the city saw no point in paying the same amount for services when Superman had taken up much of their duties. Those elements of the underworld with sufficient mobility were moving to Gotham City, causing a crime wave there the likes of which hadn't been seen in a decade. The ones that stayed in Metropolis were more organized than before, with a higher propensity towards subterfuge, trickery, and crimes that didn't make a sound. Superman didn't speak anything but English, and so there had been an explosion in language learning. That was above and beyond the general insanity that came from having a man that flew through the air and the world's first extraterrestrial. There were many things that Lois wanted to say, but she was worried she'd get too wrapped up in argument again. A good reporter pressed their subject, but didn't get heated. If she were speaking to him outside of her role as a professional, she might have called a policy of non-intervention the definition of moral laziness. She might have told him that he had the most inconsistent moral system she'd ever had the displeasure of encountering. The truth was, she didn't like Superman. They'd both read the various proposals and the pleas for aid. There were so many things that he could do, and he simply refused to do them. It might have been one thing if he'd engaged in reasoned debate, but Superman had acted unilaterally, thinking that he knew what was best for humanity. Her thoughts returned again to when he'd scooped her up like a child. Superman was a man, an alien, of presumptions. But Lois Lane was a good reporter, and so resisted the urge to berate him. How long were you on the planet before you began intervening? Two weeks. I learned English on the way over from your radio signals, and spent a good deal of time watching from above and getting a more in-depth understanding of your culture and the ways of your people, as well as the relevant laws. And did you anticipate what followed? For the most part. Celebrity. Shock. Awe. Analysis. That was predictable. What I hadn't counted on was the cruelty or organization of the attempts to kill me. Lois furrowed her brow. You're talking about people trying to shoot you? No, that I expected. The criminal element was bound to try. I let them sometimes, just to prove how useless it is to stand against me. But most of them attack me like it's going to do some good. I stopped a mugging three weeks ago, and the man kept stabbing my eyes. It didn't do anything more than dull his knife, and eventually he ran out of steam. Sometimes they shoot me, and look at their guns like they're shocked that it didn't work. 
Maybe some people don't really believe the stories until they see it for themselves. No, all that I expected. I'm talking about the bombs. That's why I came to speak with you today. The clockwork bomber. Yes. All the bombs were meant for me. They were encased in lead and had mechanisms inside to prevent me from doing anything with them. I think someone was making an effort to kill me. It seems obvious that wouldn't work, even on the face of it. The bombs were special. They used focused blasts and a variety of different materials. I think one was an attempt to blind me. They're probing for a weakness. But it didn't work. No. I've been looking over the city and trying to connect the dots. Whoever set the bombs up is going to try again. I need you to warn the people of Metropolis. If I'm right, next time it's going to be worse. Thank you to the following people. Superman and Clark Kent by Nathan Bowman. Lois Lane by Anonymous. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the conclusion to Chapter 4 and Chapter 5.